Hello everyone. We're here on Saturday afternoon. I'm here today with Chris, as usual. And we have a couple of moderators as well, just to make sure that people stay wholesome and that we stay on track. We're gonna we have some rules, so once we start into the questions period, you can only add questions to the chat. No chatter, no answers. But to start out with, I'm going to start putting a little more focus on the Dhamma portion at the beginning. People are asking for Dhamma talks. But they're also asking for me to show my face. It's as though I'm hiding I've said in the Buddha's time they would purposeful, purposefully put a fan in front of their face to hide themselves not because they were afraid although maybe maybe somewhere when you first start teaching it can be scary but that's also useful because it takes you out of the picture the, it helps you remember helps the audience remember it's not about you you know, you look at this young monk giving a talk. Maybe he just ordained or she just ordained. and You wonder what you could possibly learn from such a person. So you make it personal. When you look at me, people say, Oh, he's not even Asian. How can he be Buddhist? How can he be a monk? How can he be a teacher? Or he's young. Or he's white. It's whatever. And while it is valid to critique people and question their behavior and their qualifications, it doesn't add or take away from the message. And in fact, it can mislead you. If I was an old Asian person with a beard you might immediately think I was more qualified to teach well maybe not with a beard you know some old wizened teacher we respect authority we respect appearances and they can mislead us there's a story of Tucha Potila who became enlightened because of the teachings of a seven-year-old novice. So even a new monk, or even a not someone who's not a monk, you should take them out of the picture. You shouldn't let prejudice blind you to the truth or the falsehood of their teachings. You shouldn't just because someone's a famous teacher, just because they're a charismatic teacher, just because they have a soft, deep soothing voice just because of their rhetoric so many things that can mislead you anyway so one of them is the appearance but more importantly is that we're reminding ourselves and we're reminding each other that it's not our teachings it's not about us it's about the truth 
until we focus on the truth. When you listen to a Dhamma talk, you should close your eyes. Try your best to make it a practical experience. Try your best to gain more than just the knowledge, more than just the words, more than just the memory of having listened to the Dhamma. Today's topic is wisdom. And this morning in our study group we were studying the Alagadupama Sutta. Alagada is a snake. So we talked about, the Buddha talked about a simile of a person who grabs a snake. If you've ever grabbed a poisonous snake or learned about grabbing poisonous snakes, it's not dangerous as long as you grab them in the right place, right? If you grab them wrong, a child grabs a snake, they're most likely in trouble. And the Buddha said, same with his teaching, likened his teaching to a poisonous snake. Now there's nothing evil about a poisonous snake per se. Nothing, I suppose it, its intentions to kill and eat other beings is, is evil. But no, the, the, the thing about a poisonous snake is it's powerful. There's a real power to the poison. So the Buddha's teaching is like a snake that has venom in it. You could liken, you could compare it to a teaching that doesn't have any venom in it, meaning it doesn't have the power to kill, doesn't have the power to destroy, destroy evil. The Buddha's teaching is is potent. It's potent, but with anything, as with anything that's powerful. In fact, putting aside the Buddha's teaching, just talking about the sort of teaching that the Buddha taught, you know, talking about meditation, about mental development. Mental development in in general is dangerous. It's dangerous because it's so powerful. Anything that deals with the mind is powerful. So if you wrongly grasp the Buddha's teaching, you can hurt yourself, you can hurt others. Most importantly, what someone remarked this morning, that because it's so pure and so good and so wholesome, it has a special power to harm people who grasp it wrongly. If people learn it or study it for purpose of criticizing it, they use it for the purpose of manipulating others, there's a relationship, a direct relationship between the purity of something and the power of good or bad good or bad relations to it so if you 
support the Buddha's teaching if you say good things about it, if you practice it rightly, if you share it with others, if you protect it. All of these things are very powerful because of the purity of it. And by the same token, if you corrupt the Buddha's teaching, pervert it, if you denounce it or lie about it, destroy it, harm it, That's the Alagadupa Musutta. But one of the things that it talks about is uh, wisdom. It talks about a person who, who grasps the teaching rightly. What does it mean to grasp the teaching rightly? He said, it's a person who gives rise to wisdom. person for whom the teaching creates wisdom, where it leads to wisdom for that person. So this is the topic today I wanted to talk a little bit about what that meant. Because there were some issues I had with the translation and just talking about the difference between intellectual study and meditation realizations in meditation Buddhism is a religion about wisdom at the top at the pinnacle of Buddhism is not God it's not faith it's not magic the pinnacle of the teaching is wisdom it's the pinnacle of the training it's the key to freedom from suffering. It's the means by which a person becomes pure. The Buddha said, Panyaya Parisujati. One becomes purified through wisdom. It's not a obvious statement to make quite often we hear things like purity comes through good intentions and what seems more obvious is purity coming through kindness generosity caring love love is all you need that's what would make you a good person But in fact, none of those things have the power to purify the mind. Because they rely on the base views and uh, assumptions of the individual. Kindness, generosity, all of these things rely on vision. They rely on purity to... to appear you can't be truly kind if your perception is warped you're, you're, you can't be generous because your activities are going to be warped by 
by the views and the the opinions and the perceptions of conceit and craving and views. These things aren't strong enough to overcome those. They don't have any relationship with one's views and underlying assumptions and perceptions. So what happens is we become partial instead of loving or kind. We could become egotistical and attached to our kindness and our generosity. They don't have the power to overcome those. Only wisdom. Wisdom is at the root because it leads to clarity. It leads to the deepest sort of purity whereby one is whereby one is unable to harm another, unable to pervert one's perceptions. Just by its very definition, wisdom, meaning understanding, it implies directly seeing things as they are. And there's no there can be no perversion of one's intentions. If you intend to be kind, if you have wisdom, you can be kind. There'll be no perversion involved, meaning there's no straying from that. There can be no conceit or arrogance, because by its definition, wisdom has seen through that, has understood those. The important thing about wisdom is to understand that it is not it, it, it is not simply the learning of good things or wise things. The Buddha talked about three types of wisdom. He said Sutta Mayapanya is wisdom that comes from study. Sutta means hearing. And so it is a kind of wisdom. You could you could say that there is wisdom in learning other people's wisdom. If you learned all of the Buddha's teaching, I would say you have a lot of wisdom. But but it's not really accurate. It's misleading to say that. It's true. How do you have a lot of wisdom? Well, you memorized it. So you have it. It's yours. But it's not really yours. You could, by the same token, say a parrot. If a parrot could memorize the Buddha's teaching, it would have a lot of wisdom. It would have it, but the Buddha said this is like a like a cow herd. In India, they had lots of cows, and one person would look after someone else's cows, and they might get some money or some payment, but they would never get to taste the milk from the cow. They would never get the fruit of the labor. A person who memorizes the Buddha's teaching, maybe teaches it. This is like a per this is like a cow herd, not like the owner of the cow. So they don't actually own the, they don't actually own the dhamma for themselves. And they might be able to teach it to others. They might even become quite famous, but 
I'll never gain the true benefit, the deeper benefit of the of the Dhamma. But something we were talking about this morning is how important this type of knowledge is. And I even said this is the one thing that you should never let you should never abandon. It's one thing the tech, the translation seemed to imply that you should abandon, you should let go of the teachings. And I think that is un, is not proper. It's the one thing you should never let go of. Let's put it this way: if if something is right and true, then no good could ever come of letting go of that. If it's true, you see. So that this kind of teaching is the one thing that you should always hold on to. Whatever is true and right, that you should hold on to. Of course, knowing what is true and right is a bit of a problem. And for those of you who are not Buddhist and don't have some kind of ulterior, exterior sort of faith in the Buddha, it might not be very palatable to suggest that you should hold on to the Buddha's teaching, but Nonetheless, good comes from holding on to good things. So let's put it this way. When you see that there is benefit from the teaching, once you have put it into practice, hold on to those teachings. Because practicing them again and again and remembering them at all times will, will never fail you. It's the one thing I think you can hold on to. And the one thing you really can't do without. Without it, you've you've closed the door. Without either hearing the teaching from someone else or spending however many countless lifetimes it takes to figure it all out on your own and to get to the point where you can figure it out all on your own. So the only two ways to open the door to the te to the practice. Suttamayapanya. The second type of wisdom is Chintamayapanya. Chinta means thinking. So Suttamayapanya can run you into trouble quite easily. You become egotistical about it. Teachers who know a lot. Buddhists who have studied a lot know everything but know nothing. It can actually close the door if you become complacent. It's like you stand there praising the door. <laughs> You've got this nice house and you stand outside and talk all about the house and what it's like and you never go inside. Maybe like a realtor who can show the house to others but never has a chance to live there. But Jintamayapanya, I think, is a, is a big problem with, with educated people, people who have some degree of higher education and like to think about things. They like to doubt and debate things. And so it's easy to misunderstand that 
somehow thinking about the Dhamma is going to have a positive effect. This idea that after you've studied the Dhamma, you should spend some time thinking about it until it makes sense to you. The problem I see with that, and I've seen quite often, is the sense that you make out of, out of it much of the time is 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 wrong. You know, it's, it's based on your own existing biases. If we're here to admit and to work to overcome our biases and our misperceptions and so on, then we can't possibly expect us ourselves to really um, appreciate and understand the truth until we've seen it for ourselves. So taking the Buddha's teaching and studying them and analyzing them and debating them and thinking about them, it comes up with something, but it, as many times as not, can be something outside of the Buddha's teaching, a wrong grasp of the teaching. And people become quite attached to this knowledge. Another example is when meditating I hear about meditators saying they've had enlightenment experiences or they had these had realizations. Quite often my students will tell me they had a realization. And so in the discourse on the simile of the snake, the Buddha also has a simile of uh, of a raft. And he says Imagine a person who comes to a river wandering through the for through the jungle and they realize they can't cross that river without some help so they build a raft and they spend time and energy building this raft and it's a really nice raft so they get on the raft and they paddle them their way across the river and they're quite happy with that fact and they look at that raft and they say, wow, this raft was really useful for me. And so they say, what if I were to pick this raft up, carry it on my back, and continue on my way with this very useful raft that was so helpful for me. So they pick up the raft, put it on their back, and go on their way. The Buddha said, would this person be be wise? No, hetang bante. No, indeed, venerable sir. What should the man do? He should put, he should think, oh, this raft was very useful, but I don't need it anymore. I'll go on my way. It's a good simile to remember when things arise in meditation. There are many good things that arise. But any time they arise, we have to immediately let them go. The benefit of them arising is distinct from any benefit that might come from us clinging to them. There's no benefit from clinging to them. That benefit that they gave us was already arisen. In fact, they are the benefit. And to cling to them would be to lose our way. So any thoughts, any realizations that come up as thoughts. This is why I don't use the word vipassana. Any, I don't use the word, sorry, the word insight to translate vipassana. Vipassana means to see clearly, 
it's often translated as insight, but the word insight in English is misleading. We often think of meditation as, as teaching you things. You're going to you're going to realize things. It's going to be a, an intellectual realization. It's in fact more like a polishing of a lens. You're just going to see more clearly and there will be realizations, but those aren't the path, those aren't the practice. The practice is polishing until you can see. And when you see, of course, you're going to see lots of things. Those are jintamayapanya. The thinking about it. When you think about what you see. The third type of wisdom is called bhavanamayapanya. And that's what we try to gain out of the practice. That's the real benefit. So what I can give you today is sutta mayapanya and probably jintamayapanya. But with jintamayapanya, really all you need is an understanding of the meaning. What jintamayapanya as wisdom really means is once you gain some knowledge, you should make sure you understand it. Make sure you, you understand what's being said. So if I tell you to do walking meditation, you have to understand that I'm saying, actually do walking meditation. Not just, oh yeah, now I know how to do walking meditation. Wow, one more thing I know. And that happens. People might listen to a talk on the Dhamma or meditation and think, wow, now I know how to do walking meditation or sitting meditation. Now I know all about mindfulness. Boy, I feel enlightened already. You can't do that. But whatever you get from today, from the questions, oh, we have lots of questions. Whatever you get, make sure it leads you to seeing clearly. Not seeing clearly intellectually, but seeing clearly about your own experience and your own physical and mental reality. Just some thoughts on wisdom. And with that, I, we will move on to the Q&A portion. So, from now on, no more comments in chat, please. I'll ask the moderators to delete them. Only questions, and please, we're going to try to only answer questions related to meditation, especially focused on questions that you need answers to. We're looking for people who need our help, not curious or speculative, theoretical. We want to give rise to bhavanamayapanya. If you don't have questions or if you've already asked your question, just close your eyes like me and we can sit here and meditate together. And you can hear my voice and note hearing, hearing. Okay, let's begin. Sometimes when I notice and note hearing, I almost automatically subsequently open my hearing awareness to whatever sounds are there and then note them. Is this incorrect practice? It's an old habit. There's not really incorrect practice like that. Whatever happens becomes an object of meditation. So when you're hearing, you note hearing. And then if you start to hear something else, or if you notice your mind curious about what you're hearing or so on, you can note that as well. Not just hearing, but you can note knowing, knowing that your mind is doing that. 
See, so it's not about incorrect or correct because it's not you doing it, it's just habit. Habit isn't you, it isn't yours. So just try and note it as well. Should you focus on helping yourself through meditation instead of using your time to help others? There's really no difference. A person who helps themselves helps others. Meditation is about purifying the mind. A pure mind is much more helpful to oneself and others than an impure mind. In fact, it's the only thing that's helpful. An impure mind will never be helpful. So the more purity you can bring to your mind, the more helpful you'll be to yourself and others. There's no difference. In fact, the more pure you become, the less difference there is, the less selfish you become. The more purely helpful you become. There's nothing so helpful as the trained mind. Feeling cold after meditation, should I do anything? You should not cold, cold, that's all. If you don't like it or you're worried about it, you should note that as well. How to deal with relations when people get unintentionally irritated or offended from your behavior, the continuous misunderstandings with others are stressful. Well, try not to be around people who are easily irritated. It's not always possible, but it is a wake-up call to us that we quite often fall in with people who are not of like mind and of all the people you could surround yourself with for their benefit, for your benefit, for the benefit of the world you're best to surround yourself with people who are like-minded best to surround yourself with people who are going to support you in your practice and who, whose practice you can support because of course then all of you will work together to help the rest of the world. Apart from that, you can try to be sensitive and careful. Now it's quite possible that you are behaving in such a way that is improper, and so you have to practice being mindful, and you have to realize when you're doing things that harm others or make others upset. You have to be willing to change. We all have to be willing to admit our mistakes, None of us are perfect. And we have to work to better ourselves. But finally, you can't stop other people from getting irritated. And it isn't true that you're always at, at fault when other people get upset with you. I'd say a good default position to take is that you probably did something wrong. But af after examining carefully to see whether, what it was that you did wrong, if you can't find anything, then... Either you're just blind or else it may be possible that they are just 
without merit. Of course, getting upset is never a good thing. Anyone who gets upset, first thing to note is that this is a person who is, who is upsettable, volatile, and it may not be in your best interest or theirs for you to spend too much time with them. People who are like that really need to spend time with themselves, right? Better themselves. But that being said, we all have issues and even in meditation centers people fight and get angry at each other. It happens in monasteries, meditation centers. So we shouldn't judge people for it. We should just give them the space they need to better themselves. In meditation, sometimes I feel like I'm trying to change things. I often catch myself trying to force equanimity, even in the tone of voice when noting in my head. I note knowing. Any other advice? No, that's good. I mean, you can note if it upsets you or so on, disliking, frustrated if it frustrates you. But that's fine. See, it's just seeing, because what you're seeing is that it's not actually you. You're not actually trying to force or change things. And that's what you're going to realize eventually, is that the fact that it's coming back again and again, even though you're not intending for that to happen, means that you're not forcing things at all. See, so it's just a whole big mess of delusion. And that's all going to clear up as you practice. Is it okay to note in English, even though it is not my first language, and to use my first language for words I don't know in English? I ask because I feel that English better fits the experience. I would probably recommend using one language, either or. be good if you can find the words in your language, you can help people in your country. Maybe that someone else already has, probably you can find... Uh, person who can help you with the words which words aren't really that important why I say use one language is because it's less distracting potentially sometimes when I am focusing on the stomach and become aware of thinking before I can go away from stomach to note thinking I am pulled back to the stomach should I still note thinking? Well, you should note as soon as you become aware of thinking, so it shouldn't require you to go away from the stomach. You've already gone away from the stomach to be just to think. Um, that, so that'll that'll just get easier as you go. In the beginning, you kind of have to fudge it, do what you can. It's not. I can't give answers like this, and answers like this aren't really the point. The point is to do what you can, you know, note something. In the beginning, it's a bit of a, it's a bit chaotic. It's a bit messy. So don't try and expect for it to be somehow clear-cut. Note whatever you can in the present moment. But in, in, in the long term, there shouldn't be a problem when you're thinking and just not thinking.
Do I have to note the disliking of an object to get the benefit of becoming dispassionate about said liking? Should I give liking and disliking some priority versus discomfort and tension? Sometimes both seem to arise at once. Just note whatever's clearest. Again, it doesn't really matter which. which. Just by being clear-minded, clearly aware of something, you're cultivating this state of clarity, this habit of seeing things as they are, and that will get stronger and you'll be able to apply it to more and more and more things. Are there any tips on dealing with aversions, especially the subtle ones, toward emotions? Even when I'm trying to just accept my emotions, it always feels like it is only to get rid of it. Well, you shouldn't be trying to do anything, you see. Note when you well, when you are trying, note, you have to note that as well. When you want to accept them, say wanting. When you're uh, frustrated by the fact that you're not accepting. Again, it's pretty chaotic in the beginning. You're going to be messed up in this way, trying to control and then trying to not con to control, trying to not try to control. Catch what you can. Try and keep it simple. Note absolutely everything. When hearing others speak, my inner monologue seems to repeat what they are saying in my head. Because of this, I am having trouble noting hearing. How should I persevere? Well, if you hear it in your head, that's also hearing. But you can note knowing or if, it, if there's any reaction to it. Again, this, these, so these kind of things are habits that mostly will go away through actual intensive and systematic and repetitive practice you'll develop new habits of interacting that are simpler and less distracted less diffuse you should always persevere through patience How can one note disjointed, fragmented, incomplete thoughts? I always note thinking, but sometimes it feels lazy to note it as such and seems to prompt more similar thoughts. So it won't prompt more similar thoughts. It's just that saying thinking doesn't stop you from thinking. That's not the point. The point is that thinking makes you see it just as thinking. So when it comes again, you're going to see it as thinking and you'll be more clear about that. So if it comes again, say it again, thinking. The, the point is, not, don't misunderstand what the noting is for. It's not going to stop things. It's just going to purify the perception of them. If while meditating, you note clinging to something, how would this stop the clinging? You could observe the same clinging over and over again. 
Mm-hmm. Again, the same thing. The point is not to stop the clinging. It's to see the clinging clearly. The point is that when you when you see things clearly, by very definition of clearly means without any um, inconsistency in the sense that you do things that are against your best interest. You never would. You never would intentionally engage in some activity or some mind, even some mental activity uh, that was that was not in your best interest. The reason we do we do so is through lack of clarity, through a perverse mind state. And by perverse, it just means something that is inconsistent, wants one thing, does something else, does something that's contrary to your best interest, contrary to your your ambitions or your goals. So clinging, we cling because of lack of clarity, because somehow we think that the clinging is to our benefit. If you see it enough, you'll start to see what is it like to cling to things, how it's actually a cause of stress and suffering. And it's through seeing that that the clinging ceases. Because again, we won't do things that are not in our best interest when we know that they're not. And, and, and this is where, this highlights the difference between intellectual understanding and actual actual wisdom seeing clearly. Because it's not enough to know intellectually because you've heard the Buddha say or because you've thought it out yourself. Or even because you realized it some time ago about something else. You really do have to see clearly and have a clear mind in order to see that nothing's worth clinging to. That's the, that's what happens. Sabe dhamma nalangabhiniwe saya. You see that indeed nothing is worth clinging to. In my practice, I have noticed some things. The more prevalent feelings are fear, anxiety, obsession, and compulsion, diagnosed with OCD. Sometimes I also notice impermanence, but only intellectually. What should I do about these feelings aside from noting? So we're not trying to do, do anything about them, this is the point. Do implies that you're going to somehow change them. You shouldn't do anything about them except note which stops you from that, stops you from trying to react to them or engage with them or get involved with them, act according to them. Noting just is the, the, the default state. It's the, doing, it's the doing nothing option. It's the keeping the mind free from engagement. And that clear, that frees you to do what's more proper and more right because you're seeing clearly you're able to see the way thing the, the nature of things the way forward what is beneficial what is harmful and so on i noted i feel not good if i don't do enough meditation what should I do? Should I let go? Maybe this is also seeing uncontrollability. Well, you should do enough meditation, I think is the answer. It's kind of good that you can see that when you don't do enough, you don't feel so good. But, of course, you should note that, the feelings. 
ultimately though, yeah, do enough. After almost a year straight of daily meditation, I've found myself becoming distracted and meditating inconsistently. Are there meditations, recommended practices to deal with this? There are supported meditations, but meditation isn't the only thing that's supportive. Getting involved with communities, uh, having a meditation group, visiting a monastery, living at a monastery, that sort of thing. Living at a meditation center. Also doing good deeds, being kind and generous to others is a good way to keep your mind vibrant and healthy and energetic. But there are some meditations that will help. Meditation on death, meditation on the Buddha. Those ones are both good for giving confidence and energy. When someone has tinnitus like myself, how should you note this? Hearing or thought? Hearing. And also note the disliking of it or that sort of thing. For a distracted or obsessive mind, it takes quite some effort to get it to stabilize on the object. What is the relationship between restraint of mind-wandering, mindfulness, and unification of mind? Mindfulness does mindfulness restrains. That's the point. You shouldn't try to restrain any other way. You should restrain with mindfulness. Yani sotani lokasming sati te sangniwarayang sati is the that which restrains or forbids or stops all of the distractions, all of the streams of consciousness that make the mind diffuse. How does one know when one is doing meditation right, and how does one know they're doing it wrong? Well, in, in a, on a momentary basis, you know because your mind is pure, your mind is clear. When you're doing it right, your mind is clear, it's present. It sees things as they are, it's not judging or liking or disliking. In the long term, you know because you're gaining wisdom, you're gaining focus, and you're reducing your greed, anger, and delusion. That's basically the answer. How do you know you're doing it wrong? It's very hard to know if you're doing it wrong. You know, that's why it's good to have a teacher, a qualified teacher, who can point out when you're doing it wrong. Because if you're doing it wrong, your mind does not pure is not clear and so it'd be very hard to know 
you wouldn't know you'd be too preoccupied doing whatever it was you were doing wrong you'll know when you'll usually know when something happens that you just can't deal with and you'll just stop meditating this is what often happens or you go crazy it's rare but sometimes people just keep pushing 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 until they go crazy and it's temporary it's a temporary thing but it can happen when people practice on their own or when the teacher is not qualified or that sort of thing doesn't really happen in this tradition so much. And it still can if there's not a good teacher. The teacher can cause problems. The more time I spend unmindful, the more difficult it is for me to be mindful, especially throughout the day. Are unmindful moments due to lack of effort? They can be due to lots of things. They're due to the hindrances. You can't just say lack of effort. They're just due to bad habits, all sorts of bad habits, which involve... Lots of bad stuff. Ultimately, it just means try to be mindful. When it's difficult, you can even note that. But of course, it's difficult. It's difficult because it's not a it's not a habit we're familiar with or the habit that we've developed. It's a new habit that you have to start fresh developing. Is it a good practice to work on one of the ten perfections while meditating, like noting rising and falling with the intention to enhance the quality of persistence in oneself? No. No, it's not. That's not how the four, the ten percent perfections work. The ten perfections are the actual thing, you know, doing that thing, and they're what you need to become a Buddha. So, if you want to become a Buddha, you have to perfect ten things. You have to actually do those things. And meditation is for another purpose. After years of hardship, I found a prestigious job. I note the conceit arising. I try to take that as part of the Eightfold Path, just an honest right livelihood and honestly sharing merit. Any other tip? The right conceit and things like that, they only go away with intense and successful meditation. I mean, an anagami still has conceit. Ultimately, the 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 order of progression is to remove wrong view. So, having right view about things like conceit, which ultimately means seeing them clearly and seeing that they are not that they are a problem, and not not being conceited or taking conceit to be me, 
kind of just knowing when you're conceited, basically. And then once you are able to understand such things, that what is good for you and what is bad for you, and you see more clearly what, what that is, then you start to work on those. Then you work Im immediately on the likes and dislikes, our biases. Conceit is still something that takes longer to go away. Once your biases are gone, then you can start to really work on conceit. There's nothing wrong with having a prestigious job. Just don't take it as me or mine. Just try and take it as a practice. When noting sitting posture, between each note, there should be an awareness of the posture. Does this require looking at the posture and seeing before noting each time we note, as if keeping track? No, but if you want before you start meditating, to, you can take a look. But no, it's not about vision, it's about awareness, and it's much more to do with the feelings of tension and pressure and hardness and softness. It seems to me that I never grasp the emotions, as after once I note them, I can only see the physical sensations clearly. How can I learn about the emotions if I can't see the mental part? So if you're looking for them that way, you're only ever going to see the physical because you're trying to find something physical and emotions aren't like that. You're looking for something that isn't there, you're... you're, you're, you're thinking of it in, in the physical sense because an emotion will give in English the emotion for us includes the physical part but you can be aware that you like something or dislike something you just have to be clear that the liking and disliking is not the physical feeling of pleasure or pain I mean it's not even physical so much as it's a feeling it's not, a, it's not even so much of it being physical it's just it being separate from the actual liking or disliking and it can last longer than the liking or disliking so don't go looking for it in fact the noting isn't about looking for something it's about responding to the thing when there is liking then right away because of that you say liking but the liking's already just the moment before and so if you go looking for it you won't find it it's already gone Seeing that things are gone like that is also important. If then you only see the feeling, you note the feeling. Pain or pleasure. We're not trying to learn about anything. What you've already learned is enough that it ceased. It's no longer there. Where'd it go? It already disappeared. That's enough. How to note the transition from sitting to walking meditation? Well, we do walking first and then sitting, so there really shouldn't be a transition from sitting to walking. But if you're going to do walking, sitting, walking, sitting, that sort of thing, you just note intending to stand and then standing, standing or bending or however it, you move. And then intending to walk and then walking. 
Sometimes while meditating, I feel like I wet sock, keep getting distracted, and it also stops me from wanting to go to the gym. This makes me feel lazy, and I feel bad because it's sloth and torpor hindrance. Please help. Well, if you're distracted, say distracted. If you feel lazy, say lazy. If you feel bad, say disliking. I can't help you. These are your estates, not mine. I can help you help yourself. If you haven't read the booklet, uh, maybe you haven't read our booklet, I recommend that. If you're really interested, if you really want some help, you can take the at-home course. It's also free. That might help. I sometimes feel quite exhausted after continuously meditating for a while, and I don't feel like getting back to that intense focus. Any solution to that? So I don't know what type of meditation you're practicing, but that sort of intense focus isn't what we're all about. I recommend maybe reading the booklet, maybe trying to do an at-home course. I mean, even in this tradition, people can give rise to these sorts of states. That's not something that I'm unfamiliar with. It's just that it's something that is not a, not a part of the meditation, so it's something you'll have to learn eventually to let go of. The habit will have to go away in favor of a more fluid, flexible awareness. Less intense. And we've reached the end of questions about meditation, Bhante. Okay, well, we've reached four o'clock, so just right. So thank you all. You can now chat. Everyone can say sadhu. It is good. Sadhu. It was good. Sadhu. Happy to come here and help. Thank you, Chris, for coming to help. Looks like our moderators are also busy, so it's good we have a team. Let's Chris focus more on the questions. I can't imagine having to sift through them and figure out what tier everything belongs to. I'm happy to do my part. That's all for today, everyone. Thank you for coming. 